Pratika Nair, a writer and co-author of Asian Growth Stories, and she's here to talk about the ways by which entrepreneurs can localize their businesses and raise awareness about their brands as they build a presence in Asia. Design podcast. Nowadays, it seems like there's a lot more,、um, you know, globalization that's happened. Obviously, there's cultural differences, but you know, people are more exposed to what's going on, you know, overseas, the Western world, and and they're happy to import it, right?、Mm-hmm. So, like in a case like Grab, which is like a, you know, like a similar thing as Lyft or Uber,、um, but they do it much better. Uh, or did it much better than than Uber in the end? And and why do you think that that What do you think was the main difference between the two? Between Uber and Grab. The Grab, Grab and Uber, yeah, because、right. Uber had to sell off their shares. Yeah,、um, I think it ultimately comes down to localization, right?、Mm. Um, when Uber came in, they came in very aggressively, looking to expand, and、uh, and to do it in their own way. As opposed to working with、uh, regulatory frameworks, which you have a lot of in Asia,、mm. so I mean I could be wrong, but I think basically what they did wrong was not、uh, working in line with these already existing regulatory frameworks.、Mm. Whereas、um, Grab, for example, they made it very localized. You know, they they advertised for locals. They integrated with taxi companies,、mm. and that's how they could expand.、Um, Even simple things like、uh, Uber was cashless, and、uh, in a Southeast Asian economy, maybe that's not、mm. the best way to go. Whereas、mm. Grab had cash options, and、uh, when Grab was expanding to other countries in Southeast Asia, I felt like Uber was maybe just、um, looking to expand just to get market share in other countries as well, as、mm. opposed to actually localizing to suit the markets、mm. there. So I think that would have been the main、mm. thing that that. Made them fail. Yeah, in Asia. Well, you, you you do touch on a good point because it seems like culturally, a lot of the com-、uh, American companies or maybe Western in that aspect、um, want to disrupt.、Mm-hmm. Right, they want to disrupt in, in industries. They don't care about regulations, or they make it look like they don't care about regulations and try to get in there and then have regulations kind of catch up. Yeah. Right. Whereas, and and this is probably a very cultural thing for、mm-hmm. Asia, people. Are more afraid of governments, you、yeah. know, and they would rather、uh, stick with governmental rules、mm-hmm. uh, and then、um, work with the government to expand their business.、For、so、sure. they always want to, you know, talk to the governments and 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 talk about how they can fit in with the local communities or local、um, country and with their rules, and then hand in hand grow their business, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean,、um, like part of the reason why we failed as well is because. Uh, well, taxi companies are not going to be happy,、mm-hmm. right? If you come in there just looking to get as huge of a market share as possible without considering local needs, the fact that you're pushing out a large, you know, group of people who rely on this as their occupation,、mm-hmm. um, you have to consider the needs of the people whom you are taking that share away from. So, 
that's also very considerate too, right? Yeah, because of course, for yeah. for Uber, they didn't really care, right? So they didn't care, but in conservative Asian markets, they're gonna look at you know people that come in from the outside, like no, you're coming in and taking my share. I'm not gonna stand for this, mm. and uh, they're not gonna be very uh, welcoming in that sense. So there was a lot of tension in that aspect, I guess. Mm. Whereas for Grab, because they integrated so well with taxi companies here. And it was more about um, providing safe taxi services for consumers mm. and uh, not just, uh, you know, slashing prices, which is great for consumers. Yeah, but when you have hundreds of thousands of taxi drivers in one country and it's such a huge part of the economy here, you can't ignore mm. it, right? Yeah, sure. So. And it creates uh, employment, right? Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, working with uh, taxi companies to in su ensure that they will continue to have a job, mm -hmm. whether they work for a taxi company. Because I, I find that, you know, initially when Grab did join hands with the taxi companies and I, and I asked the taxi drivers, are you actually working for a Grab or does your does Comfort, you know, the government taxi company allow you mm -hmm. to work for Grab at the same time? It's like, oh, yeah, no problem. They, you know, we could choose whatever you want to. And that, uh, that really surprised me. Exactly. Because they had the, that additional option, right? As mm. opposed to like, oh, you know, these private drivers are coming in. Their rides are cheaper. Obviously, everyone's going to go for them. And then there's mm. a lot of unhappiness surrounding it. Mm. Whereas now, I mean, it's it's not as good for the consumer, obviously, because you get surge pricing and things like that. Mm. But ultimately... It's about finding that um, that middle ground that makes everyone happy, mm. and Grab did very well in mm. that aspect, and Uber didn't. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and I sometimes I think you know maybe you know for the American ones which are very uh, disruptive and, and try to create new ideas, uh, but uh, you know for for the rest of maybe even for the rest of the world, do you think that the Asian model would fit more? Uh, even across Western countries than the uh, other way around? Again, what is the Asian model, right? Yeah. Because Asia in itself is, is huge and uh, local markets, they all differ hugely. Mm -hmm. So um, w what do you mean by an Asian model? Like, uh, well, you know, like working with the governments together, as I said, you know, bringing in everybody so that they don't lose a job and they can continue, but also using that technology to enhance uh, their lives. Yeah, for sure, because the infrastructure varies so much in each country, you have to take into account that sort of ecosystem as well, right? You can't just come in expecting um, the country to be able to to adapt to what you're offering. You have to come in and fill in the gap, I feel. Mm. Um, so in that sense, yeah, you definitely have to work more with the government because they will be able to understand the needs of their citizens best. Mm -hmm. Um I don't think it's a matter of giving in to regulatory frameworks. It's about working with them to provide a service that has not been provided before. That's the best way to go about uh, mm. getting consumers in the first place, right? Mm. So but just taking the taxi business, though, it's such a monopolized business, right? Any any country you go, generally, you know, the government definitely has a a um, a piece of that business. Um, so you know, taxi itself or taxi. Uh, in itself is a very um well especially let's talk about singapore i mean mm -hmm. you can find taxis anywhere right so yeah. where was that gap you know where was that gap where the government wasn't providing transportation for the people that made grab or uber successful initially uh to take over parts of that taxi business i think it's purely just pricing yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's what it worked on yeah. and that's what worked obviously for consumers mm. because i mean singapore's not um exceptionally expensive when it comes to taxis but it is compared to the rest of southeast asia mm. right so it, 
if you give people more options, they're going to take it anyway. Mm-hmm. Even if it's marginally cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, or do you think it was like convenience as well? Because yes, there was an app for the taxis, mm-hmm. but it was pretty shitty, right? I mean, you know, and, and w- the experience that you get from uh, getting an Uber or a Grab, it's pretty seamless. True. You know, every time it gets better. Um, I think their algorithm that um, you know, makes makes they makes it much eat much quicker, and, and they learn, you know, um, the best routes and all that. Whereas sure, the user experience is just a lot better, right? I think so. Yeah. And then you mentioned about like you know credit card integration. I mean, I had many times. Here, when I got into a cab, they only took cash. Yeah. Or they asked me where I'm going yeah. and refused yeah. uh, to take me into a certain location. So, obviously, there were a lot of, for me, I mean, there was a lot of dissatisfaction yeah. about the experience where, you know, I think technology just removed that completely uh, sure, when, yeah. when Grab and Uber um, came in. Well, that's exactly like what you were saying just now about the gap, right? Because now people have more options, like you said, when you're going out late at night. And you're trying to get a cab and they're not going to pick you up because they have a destination in mind. Um, sometimes you just want to get home and you don't mind yeah. paying that extra surcharge sure. just to get home. So at least now you have that option. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the mm. aspects that um, it provided for people here that, that mm. wasn't being you know, right. addressed before. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about like, so you said Asian cultures, obviously I know that they're all different, um, but uh, let's go into specifics. I mean, like what, how are they actually different? So like Indonesia, mm-hmm. I'm sure you traveled around uh, everywhere and interviewed all these people in your book and stuff, right? So like how, how are they different? So an example, for, it, it, could, it could be a comparison with like Gojek yeah. to a grab or you can choose whatever you know example that you like. But what, what do you, what, how do you see like a, a certain differences? Yeah, so I think, I think the most important thing to take into account is infrastructure. Mm. Um, when you're talking about like Infocom, for example, levels of access to it and levels of development, they're so different in different countries, right? Um, the level of uh, internet access in Singapore is not going to be anywhere near what it is in, you know, in Cambodia, for example. Sure. So that plays a large part in um, the cultures mm-hmm. of business around Asia. So, for example, Indonesia actually has a really huge e-commerce uh, yeah. a market, right? Mm-hmm. Compared to some place like well, you call it emerging economies. Mm-hmm. So even compared to places like Vietnam, Vietnam's actually up and coming; it's mm-hmm. booming now. But again, compared to economies like Cambodia or Myanmar. Uh, Indonesia has a significantly larger amount of the population online, shopping online, and things like that. So you have to take this into account when you want to start your business. Like you could start a business online in Cambodia or Vietnam, but it's not going to be the same as doing it in Indonesia because when the market's already so saturated, what's going to make you better than everyone else? Mm. And then again, that comes into going offline again, right? You start off online, but you know if you want to engage consumers, you have to go offline. You have to meet the people that you're catering to. Mm. Um, how do you get inside their heads? How do you get to know what they want? Um, things like that. So, for example, one of the people that we interviewed um, in the Indonesian context, what they did was they were running a small business, but they knew that they had to improve consumer engagement. Mm-hmm. So what they did was they actually went out on the streets, you know, gave out flyers, old school. No one does that anymore except for you. Um, and uh, they did promotions where they were like, okay, if you wear our clothes, 
uh, and take pictures of yourself. Then we'll give you promo- we'll give you rewards for it. Mm. You know things like that. So really getting the people involved and uh, getting to know what they want. Mm. And another way of doing that, for example, in the Philippines, um, there's a huge online presence as well. Um, so many people are on Facebook, on LinkedIn, even, even professionally speaking, right? Even on LinkedIn. Mm. So it's not that difficult to actually get online, find your niche, uh, have conversations with them. You know, not just observe, but actually have conversations with them, find out what they want, um, ask them questions and listen mm. to what they want. Um, or is that approach might not work in some place like Myanmar, mm-hmm. right? So Meaning like they, they, they're okay with just, you know, email exchange or you have to do everything offline yeah exactly so in some countries it's okay to just converse online Mm. Uh, it's acceptable whereas in other places they would want to meet face to face they would want that um facetime they want the interaction in order for them to trust you Mm -hmm. right um i think in a lot of asian countries especially you see that difference um in terms of uh it's 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 a stereotype, right? But they say like in the West, you can uh, you can keep professional in the office, mm-hmm. and then that's where it stays. Whereas in Asia, there's this there's this idea of that no, you have to take it outside of the office. You have to go for drinks. Yeah, you have to really get to know each other, and mm-hmm. then I'll trust you. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and you know we used to joke that uh, when I started working in Japan. All the business happened in a smoking room, exactly. <laughs> and then you have to go out and get hammered, yeah. And then you actually start doing business, yeah. And so I, I used to fake smoking and go downstairs and then uh, mingle with the people because that's where most of the you know decisions were actually made, yeah. and it was not at the meeting room or you know in the uh, in the office, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, but I'm sure there's like a degree of um, offline activities that are happening uh, in, in businesses, right? So um, in certain cultures, maybe you could give me an example where like um, you do have to go out and get shit faced or some places where, you know, the, it's OK to, you know, keep it kind of professional and and um, and uh, you don't have to do so much mm-hmm. o- offline stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's, uh, um, you know. What, what kind of examples do you have? So it's tricky, right? I mean, what do these uh, interactions entail outside of the office? Um, how do I come in here and try to win your favor? Uh, and that kind of overlaps with issues like corruption and bribery mm. as well. Um, if I bring you on a night out because I want to get to know you better as a client, does it count as bribery if I'm going to pay for all your drinks? Right. Some mm. people spend hundreds of dollars in a night just sure. entertaining their clients. Could then be considered bribery. Um, also, just things like um, gift giving. Mm-hmm. So in Cambodia, it's it's actually from what I from what I've heard. Right. Uh, it is perfectly acceptable to pro- give gifts to mm-hmm. potential clients. And in fact, they expect it. Mm. So if you don't do that, then you might not get their business. Yeah. And uh, Transparency International actually carried out a study, you know, like, uh, um, just perceptions of corruption within countries like Vietnam and Cambodia. And in some of these places, you know, business owners, like maybe as much as 60% of business owners found that they had to give gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously this wouldn't fly in some in a place like... Oh, it's like really expensive gifts or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like 
Rolexes cars or, or car, yeah. really just okay. things like that yeah right. um i'm not sure sure about like uh, about cash gears i'm not really sure mm-hmm. yeah but um so yeah how how you take it out of the office really matters right mm. you don't want to be construed as actually trying to bribe someone if you're not sure. you can't do that in places like singapore or hong kong mm-hmm. where anti-corruption laws are so strict sure yeah so I think that's the main difference about understanding what is expected of you as someone who's coming into the market and trying to win favor. Mm. Yeah. But how, do you think that's changing over time? I mean, do you think it's like an, still an old school thing that older people respect some kind of an exchange uh, for their business? Do you think younger people are like kind of, you know, kind of stepping away from that or are they actually continuing that t- tradition? I think like if that, if that, structure is already in place there will be people who try to make use of it anyway yeah. what matters is um uh anti-corruption structures in place that mm. would actually enforce rules so you know in countries like in china or india it's it's too massive mm. you just can't enforce yeah. these regulations right how sure. are you gonna keep track of minute transactions that are going on or, mm-hmm. um and there's a way always ways to kind of hide it anyway for right? sure yeah. and if it's acceptable so to speak in certain aspects of society mm. there will be people to make use of it why mm. not right sure especially if they're going to get away with it they know they're going to get away with it mm. so i don't know if it's going to change i think um regulatory frameworks have to change uh anti-corruption laws have to change it's easy to regulate in small countries like singapore yeah, right? for sure. Kong, yeah. it's so much easier but uh you know like in india for example when um, modi he undertook the demonetization you have to go through huge steps like that just to try and uh, curb corruption. Yeah. Are governments really willing to go that far? Because that's a massive undertaking, mm-hmm. you know? Not just in terms for business, but also you, just your citizens in general, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a process that takes months. That takes months. You don't know what the outcome of it is going to be as well. Yeah. People are going to hate you for it. Sure. So I don't know if it will change anytime soon. But even with that demonetization, I mean, did did actually curb bribery and corruption? It's too soon to say. Right. Yeah, it's too soon to say. Um, also, that money just goes back to the government anyway, right? Mm. So it will take a bit of time before we see the effects of that. But um, basically, everyone had to get rid of their stashes mm-hmm. of cash. Sure. Right. Yeah. So it remains to be seen. Yeah. yeah. Right. But you know, sometimes you know people view it as like a way to get stuff done. You yeah. know. Right. And you know, there's. You know, many, many years, I mean, many countries have been bribing, you know, other countries' officials so that it could get things done. Whereas if you do it in a proper channel, you can never get things done, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, so it's always like, you know, like an equilibrium, you know, kind of thing where it's like, okay, do I bribe this guy to, to provide great infrastructure for this country yeah. or I don't pay and then I, and, and, you know, there's, there's nothing for this country, right? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it, it's a, maybe it's a more philosophical thing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, does it need to exist, you know, or to to make things happen? Or, you know, is this something that we should completely eradicate so that, um, you know, the, the country can, you know, prosper without yeah. this dark money going on? Yeah. See, because it's philosophical, you have to consider the situations. When you're talking about it on that level, yeah, okay. I want to accept this money because I want to see my country prosper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but where it actually happens is on the much smaller scale where it's it's between people on the streets, right? You know, I don't have the time and money to wait for the papers 
for my building to get built. Mm. I, I don't have the time to go through all this red tape. It's just easy for me to pay off this guy because he's going to ask for it anyway and he's mm. going to give me trouble if I don't give him the money. Mm. So that's where the mindset has to change. Not so much on a on an upper mm. scale, but um, on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Yeah, I think that's where it has to change. Mm. Right, because, you know, political corruption is everywhere, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a developing country or a developed country. I mean, it's, it's always there. Um, you hear on the news all the time, yeah. you know, like whatever, you know, Joe Biden's son, you know, mm-hmm. who went and, you know, the stuff that you've been hearing about Trump. But also, I mean, even the best best countries in the world are, are having corruption. Yeah. And sometimes it, it, it smoothens out, um, you know, uh, political tension between two countries in some way. But maybe you're, you're saying that on a daily day to day basis where, you know, if I get caught speeding and I you know, give a hundred bucks to, to, to the police and I get, um, you know, get away with it. Yeah. You're saying that needs to be eradicated. Yeah. What incentive are you giving to the policeman to not accept the bribe? What incentive are you mm. giving to, to the guy who is speeding to not give the bribe? Right. Um, well, that's what they say about Singapore, right? That's why mm. all politicians are amongst the most highly paid yeah. in the world. So, so that that's the thing. Like if you go to anywhere, Indonesia, or I've experienced this as well, yeah. Malaysia, mm-hmm get caught speeding or doing something you pay them off because you know that they're actually not getting paid right yeah. they're just really poor you have to pay them off and that's, that's how, how they, they make, make most their of their money yeah exactly yeah and um, um which is great i mean like you know if you see that on a smaller scale yeah but then it becomes a lot more sinister when you see um how it that extends to other aspects of society for like for example um human trafficking across borders mm. right uh it's it's pretty bad because you do see cases of, for example, they found uh, mass graves of uh, of Rohingyas who were trying to get across mm. the border from from Thailand to Malaysia, you know that sort of thing, or just people trying to come over for labor purposes, and um, the ones enabling it are local officers mm-hmm. because they're getting paid off for it because they're not getting paid enough, mm-hmm. right? So. Yeah, we can joke about paying off a speeding ticket, but then it does extend into areas of society that cause so much harm to people, Mm. right? The fact that you are trying to curb human trafficking. Well, I think a lot of countries in Southeast Asia, they approach it from more of a border control sort of Mm. perspective. They don't want illegal immigrants coming in. But at the end of the day, a lot of people are being exploited for this. Mm. And uh, I mean, you heard about the the, the lorry deaths in Essex. Same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because... People get so much money for it. These people were paying ten thousand to thirty thousand pounds just for passage. Mm. Um, I think that's that's what we should be focusing on, as opposed to just small cases of bribery here and mm. that are going to happen because people want things to get sped up. Sure, mm. but where it really counts is in situations like this. I think. Mm. Yeah. But sometimes when I see like these refugees from Syria trying to enter uh, the EU and they get stopped, and there's all this political bullshit that's going on that yeah. they don't want to accept them, or they have to be in these detention centers for a long while, yeah. where you know, as you said, the Rohingyas maybe could have you know bribed the local officials off to cross over the border, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so sometimes it looks like there's you know, a, a beneficial factor for it because it, it allows people who are who are actually in, you know, like kind of humanitarian situations be relieved, um, you know, because of that. That's true. So it, it kind of it speaks to um, the larger structure at work here, right? Why are people having to 
cross borders in this way anyway and um, why are we focusing so much on security and border control as opposed to the socioeconomic factors that push people across these borders in the first place mm-hmm. right um, yeah no you're right uh, it does it is beneficial in that sense but also who else does it benefit it benefits corrupt officers mm. who are basically you know making a living off the suffering of all these people trying to get across mm-hmm. yeah sure yeah um yeah that's true and um you know i think the the thing that is um pulling down a lot of the economies in southeast asia are kind of due to these bribes as well yeah. right so like in india um you know corruption is a pretty rampant and um you know there's there's a lot of red tapes yeah uh that need to be um you know kind of overcome to do business or even any political agenda mm-hmm. uh whether you want to even just build a road or or build a dam or something i mean so you know how 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 are are the, are we all kind of take or these com- countries taking like baby steps to even make these things better um or are we seeing any material changes um that we um that we can foresee in like in the next 5 10 years that allow businesses or you know political um agendas to be um you know you know come into fruition For sure. Yeah, I think especially countries like India and China, they're really recognizing the need to provide a conducive business environment, mm. right, for people to come in. So, if you see like UN um development progress reports over the past couple of years, India and China, they have actually moved up quite a bit mm-hmm. in terms of providing a good environment for business, you know, things like um just uh in terms of regulations or building permits things like that they mm. are focusing on these things to mm. to open up the market a little bit mm. uh, you have to and they're recognizing that so it, yeah. it it is like you said baby steps it will take a long time because you're talking about something in such a huge scale right but they are definitely moving in that direction i would say mm. yeah i mean singapore is probably the most or the country that's ranked the easiest to do business yeah. right yeah. and but it, you know it seems like singapore always takes the balanced approach where you know um you know they'll they'll see a industry flourish and then they'll think about regulations or something so like take the blockchain business that yeah. you know i'm in, in as well i mean yeah. you know crypto trading or blockchain businesses have been have been pretty um uh you know o- available or like open um uh, for business uh, in singapore and there's been a lot of countries uh sorry companies from different countries coming over to singapore um to do you know uh blockchain businesses ICOs or what who, what have you uh for for quite a long time and and now slowly you know Singapore is saying okay these are going to be the rules yeah. where you know certain countries like outright banned them like China mm-hmm. India uh for you know cryptos um uh, and Japan I think was the first one to s- s- regulate crypto exchanges and then they regulated the heck out of ICO so that nobody would do it which is probably right but i mean right. but i mean i i don't think that any they gave anybody a chance to even do it properly right so um how i mean do you think this is like the the model that you know singapore can showcase to the rest of the world how business can be done where that's right <laughs> yeah well i don't think there's a right or wrong but i mean there's a reason why singapore has become the country that is easier to do business right and but again know, like what kind of business yeah sure 
Well, okay, so let's take like technology. Yeah. For okay, so new business. Singapore always likes new stuff, right? right? Or the things that smell like money. Mm -hmm. And 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 you know, I think that's that's kind of the way that um, you know Singapore has has definitely grown. And for I mean, and can that model be you know, even in a cultural sense, right? Going back to your cultural differences and all that. But you know, I think Singapore is doing it in their own cultural way to um, relax certain industries so that it can flourish and see how it can make money and then decide what they want to do with it. I mean, do you think that's that's a type of model that, you know, countries like Japan or the U.S. or, you know, U.K. or, you know, other countries can, you know, kind of, you know, I don't know, cut and paste and do it? Or do you think there's more of a cultural element to it? I think there's definitely a cultural element to it also because um, Singapore is so small. Um, and in terms of finite resources, it really focuses on industries that it knows are viable, mm. um, that will have good returns, right? Yeah. Uh, so it there's a lot of there's a lot of investment into science and tech for sure because you know that it's gonna do well. Mm. Um, people would argue that it could do a lot more for the arts. You know, uh, should all countries follow this model? I don't know. It depends on what each country finds important in the first place, you know? Mm. Um, I don't know. Um, I think it depends on what you hope to achieve at the end of the day mm. because Singapore relies so much on foreign firms coming in for investment. Mm -hmm. So that's why it opens up in that sense. Whereas in other countries where they're still focusing on developing their own infrastructure, like India, for example, uh, I don't think they would take such a, a focused approach into what to invest in because they're not doing much investment in terms mm. of, you know, foreign firms anyway. Mm -hmm. So uh, it depends on the priorities, I mm. guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as you know, Singapore is like run like a business, right? Yeah. And yeah. It, there's always have to be an ROI for yeah. some things that they do. But, you know, if you're actually using taxpayers' money, shouldn't there be an ROI for things that government, you know, does? I mean, whether it's, you know, building roads and, mm -hmm. and bridges mm -hmm. or spending on science and technology or, you know, investing for sports and arts. Yeah. I mean, everything has an ROI to it, right? Yeah, practically and, speaking, and, yeah, for sure. And why can't, you know, if you're spending people's money and putting it into these projects, whatever it is, mm -hmm. there has to be an ROI to yeah. it, right? Yeah, fair enough. And, you know, I, I, so I, personally, I think, you know, that, that mindset should be applied okay. to anything that government, whether they're they're conservative or they're liberal, it doesn't really matter because ultimately it has to go back to the people, right? Sure, but then wouldn't there be um, an extra focus on the STEM industries, right? Because mm. those always have the best returns anyway. Mm -hmm. And all countries would just end up focusing on that, I feel. Well, I, I think it's about allocation, right? Like, let's say, you know, just I'm, I'm going to think about it in like a, investment kind of way yeah. so you have a portfolio of various industries that you like to grow yeah. you know sports arts technology science whatever it is mm -hmm. and you know maybe the politicians can get together and say okay you know for the next five years we're going to allocate 20 percent of these funds to science and tech yeah you know and then 10 percent for sports mm -hmm. whatever it is mm -hmm. i don't care what it is but yeah. the thing is you know they should have this kind of approach where you know they they assign rois to each of them whether it doesn't, I mean, it's very hard to quantify ROI in these senses, but, you know, you want to have some kind of e economic outcome from, from doing these things. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, they, they pick and choose what they what it will be, and then 
each ministry of whoever's like assigned to it can decide within that where that money would go. It could be to stem cell research. It could be, um, you know, blockchain technologies, whatever yeah. it is, yeah. you know, and then, and then do that. I mean, and it's kind of like what, what Singapore is doing in some way. Right. Yeah. But also because, um, in these industries, it's so much easier to quantify. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Um, especially when it comes to innovation, for example, it's so much more tangible to say that this is going to be the outcome Hmm. of your investment into this whereas you don't have that sort of tangible returns from if you were to invest in the arts or into sports Hmm. right well i mean you know professional sports you can actually quantify right so but also if you don't give like um, enough funding to the arts how who are you who's to know whether you know a particular filmmaker is going to make it big someday or not because Mm -hmm. they don't have the sort of uh, funding that other industries would have so it is very much a choice. Um, by choosing to focus on these industries, there are going to be, there is going to be a lack of innovation in other areas. And if you're willing to accept that just for the sake of ROI, yeah, I guess for practical reasons it makes sense. But then you are also sort of excluding um, talent of various other industries as well. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, f- especially for Singapore, I mean, I think. You know, they they want something very tangible, actionable, and then you know keep the people happy yeah. that they're getting something yeah. for it. And then you know whether it's culture, art stuff, they can just import it, right? I mean, that's kind of easier mm-hmm. for them, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, there's there's a need for you know a certain amount of um, you know uh, budgets allocated for arts, of course. But you know, sometimes I think you know the the um, uh, Foreign countries can actually contribute to that as well. I was watching a um, Filipino movie mm-hmm. on Netflix, mm-hmm. and I'm sure no local producer would have the amount of cash to put down uh, a production of a movie than Netflix compared to Netflix, right? right? Yeah. So then, you know, actually Netflix was actually contributing to the growth of the movie production yeah. industry in Philippines, right? Yeah. And then giving them a platform where international viewers can actually have a chance to watch a filipino movie i never watched a filipino True. movie before in my life True. and i thought it was pretty good yeah. so um you know i think those you know that that's also a way to kind of um allocate capital too right or, or say okay well we'll bring in this kind of industry so then they can flourish our country you know for sure but then there's two aspects of that as well right um like you said because netflix did it so this is a platform that is actively seeking to quite be quite diverse, mm-hmm. right, in the first place. Sure. So it would make sense for them to do it. Mm-hmm. But why would any other foreign entity invest into the arts mm-hmm. of a different country? Right. And uh, yeah, it should be. I think that should that owner should be in the government ultimately. Right. Yeah. Mm. But um, I, I've seen like other, and I was on. I guess in the west west areas here, there's. There's quite a few. I went to GovTech mm-hmm. uh, here, and then it shared the same um, building as Fox. I think we're right. like HBO or something. Yeah. Um, so I was quite amazed, and I was uh, asking our produ- production guys, like, why would you know HBO or Fox want to have an office in Singapore? A lot Singapore? of the media firms have moved there. Yeah. yeah but even like overseas ones, I was quite a, quite a, um, surprised why would they would have you know like an American shares you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was kind of. Now, I'm sure it's some kind of uh, governmental agreement um, between or Singapore government with with that company <coughs> to have an office. Yeah, also, they just to have that as a hub, I guess, for, you know, yeah. 
yeah, they probably got a good deal out of locating their office there yeah. anyway. So. They'll probably hire Singaporeans, yeah. and then maybe they could learn how to create like movies and and TV dramas and stuff. So sure. Like yeah. Yeah. So I think there are ways. I mean, but uh, in terms of yeah, that's Singapore. But like you know, for for the ASEAN countries mm-hmm. to kind of make an impact, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether e- economically or whether it's uh, um, you know in the in the well, I guess politically as well. Um, how, how do you see you know them building out their presence within even within the the larger Asian regions? You know, because it's definitely the youngest region, yeah, right by age um, compared to the rest. Yeah, and uh, growing population. Um, they they skipped the several industrial leaps that you know developed countries uh, experience as well. So, w- what's your view on like the next? move for the ASEAN countries? I think ASEAN in general is focusing on just opening up its borders as much as possible mm-hmm. for, you know, things like free trade between member nations. And also um, they are extending it to other countries in the region like China, Japan, India, Australia, right? So they understand that they, I think it's a two-pronged sort of approach. Um, they need to sort of be the architects of their own economic success. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, they also understand the need to work with other countries in the region. They can't just isolate themselves and you know be protectionist in that mm-hmm. way. But I think within borders, they are trying to open up a lot. They're trying to improve trade flows uh, in terms of data as well, right? Mm-hmm. They're looking into that. But again, because digitalization varies so much across countries, mm-hmm. um, it's a little bit difficult to integrate mm-hmm. compared to the EU, for example, where... Levels of development are a little bit more on par. Right. So it will take time, but I think leaders here are generally very optimistic about working with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of focus on the ASEAN way, they mm-hmm. call it, right? So that is purely diplomatic, how you relate with other countries, how you communicate with them. Uh, they're very careful about maintaining cordial relations with one another. And I think that goes a long way in just sort of maintaining stability in the region right a lot of people mm. might say it's just it's just f- fluffy shit on the surface but actually i think it does it does go a long way in mm. ensuring that everyone cooperates with each other and uh, maybe things are not getting done as fast as they could be mm. if they were to actually focus on things like frameworks for mm. trade or um like the south china sea crisis they're trying yep. to they're trying to come up with a code of conduct mm. on how people on how countries should uh should carry themselves in terms of you know laying claim over these islands and everything so there are a lot of ideas in place but even though they're not making much progress i think as a block they're doing really well um you're talking about 600 million people so it's just a matter of uh bridging the gap between countries that have not quite caught up economically Mm -hmm. or in terms of infocom and things like that which will take time yeah but for the most part uh I think everyone's looking towards Asia now, right? And yeah. Southeast Asia, especially. Uh, I know they always say that Singapore is a beacon in the region. Sure. But I think so there's a lot to be said about the capabilities of other countries in the region, especially when talking about young population, mm. uh, growing levels of infrastructure, rapid rates of development in some countries. Um, yeah, I think... ASEAN is definitely the place to be mm. on Asia in general. Mm. And how are like developed countries like 
making inroads into ASEAN. So I know, like, you know, from my experience, like Japanese companies um, have a base in Singapore. Yeah. And they send usually their best people to, to, to Singapore. Mm-hmm. It's not New York. It's not the UK. I mean, they send generally their elite staff to Singapore. Because right. so th- ASEAN is the largest growing market for them. It's closer to home and culturally closer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, I, what I don't see is like how, you know, like a very traditional, you know, um, culture like from Japan would relate to a very young, dynamic, you know, population, right? And so it's like, you know, yeah, maybe you see rice and like, you know, we might, yeah. <laughs> you know, like have similar kind of features or whatever. But like, it, it, but, you know, Japanese are much older. You know, and and mindset is like more kind of traditional, and 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 they have their own ways that they want to do business. Mm-hmm. It's not dynamic for sure, mm-hmm. right? Um, whereas he, here, I feel like everything. You know, you could some some countries. You know, they they could move fast. Like my experience was like in Vietnam. You go to Vietnam, and you know, you could get an MOU quickly done within that meeting. Where yeah. you know, I go to Thailand, it takes like several weeks mm-hmm. to get you know things done and or, or even one agreement yeah. signed off i mean so how 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 can you know these like traditional minded people come into this kind of young region and mm-hmm. then you know kind of you know get business done right i think it's um understanding what your local market wants right um yeah it's about understanding what they want at the end of the day and a lot of people don't know that they just sort of try to apply a one-size-fits-all approach, especially when it comes to countries outside of Asia coming to, uh, trying to move in. Mm. And... Uh, yeah, there is a perception that Asia is all the same, right? As a block, yeah. right? Whereas there's there's so much nuance to it, like mm. doing business in Asia. I mean, mm-hmm. even amongst Asian countries, there's so much difference. Um, just things like... Uh, I think a lot of people use the analogy of the business cards, right? Mm. How do you prov- how do you present your business card? Yeah. Uh, depending on which country you're in, you know, some in some places you have to give it with both hands. Mm-hmm. In some places you have to accept it with only your right hand. Mm. Uh, you don't put it into your pocket. You leave it on the table, or you pretend to read it at least to show respect to the person that's giving it to yep. you. Things like that. So again, that varies from country to country, mm. and. Um, even if you are from a traditional society trying to move into a more dynamic one, I think that's only of benefit to you at the end of the day. Mm. And if you're willing to do that and adapt, then it's it's definitely beneficial to you. Mm. And it's it's quite funny that you would say that actually because I wouldn't actually consider Singapore to be particularly open-minded in comparison to Japan or anything. I think they're still quite conservative about business practices here. Sure. Culturally yeah, no, as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's like kind of super open and no. you do whatever you want kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. No, they're just trying to make it look like it's open so they can attract. Well, it's good for business. Know, yeah. But culturally, maybe not so much. Mm. I, mean, I mean, Japan's been like, you know, you try to do anything in Japan and it takes forever, right? right. So, you know, it already kind of has that perception that mm-hmm. it's hard to do business in Japan, language issues, right? I mean, Sing- at least Singapore doesn't have that. That's true. I think that, that has a huge part to play in it as well. And uh, it's also going to affect how other countries in the region are going to develop economically over the next few years. Mm. You know, they say like countries like India, for example, uh, they might reach economic parity with the U.S. by 2030. But what is going to give it an edge, an edge over China, for example? Mm. Just things like um, 
the language barrier. You sure. know, a lot more people speak English in India, mm. uh, and that gives that that gives India an edge, even though they're not sure. having the same levels of development that China mm. is right now. But mm. in the long term, that definitely has a part to play. Sure, and um, I think as well. Um, demographics of where you're going right mm. uh, so we're talking about younger populations for example uh, in emerging economies in Asia um, developing countries tend to have much younger populations than in Singapore or Japan yeah. right and you have to take that into account when you're trying to break into the markets as well I mean millennial marketing right sure how do you change that in accordance to what you're trying to bring into the country uh, what kind of social media do you focus on what platforms do you use Again, there's different platforms in different countries. Mm. Um, so you would think it's common sense, but a lot of people just try to cast their, ni- their net as wide as they can. And they waste a lot of resources mm. doing that. Mm. When in fact, you should be narrowing down what's, what's the best way to reach your audience. Mm. So there's marketing that is very crafted for millennials. Uh, how do we, how do we you know, create hype around a product before we actually drop it? Um, that wouldn't apply to traditional marketing that you see for old generations yeah. in the rest of Asia, right? Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. And I heard like personal branding is very important now. I mean, it's kind of like o- across, you know, the board, right? Every It's not specific to ASEAN, but um, <laughs> it seems like there's more attachment to, you know, the person itself rather than the product or the company. For sure, yeah. I think um, maybe, I, I think... In Asia, especially so, especially with K-pop and all yeah. of that, right? There's a lot of there's a um, focus on idols mm. and influences as well. That that applies to anywhere. Mm. But um, yeah, you're right about personal branding. So a lot of it has moved away from uh, traditional advertising to recruiting people off the streets, or you know, it doesn't have to be someone who's particularly famous, as long as they have a decent following on, on mm. social media. Um, they're a great way to access a very young market mm. right and a lot of people for actually a pretty low cost mm-hmm. yeah compared to traditional media right yeah well, i mean if a lot of businesses are going more and more online i mean they yeah. start to lose a face for the company right i mean before you might have a retail or so think about e-commerce i mean mm-hmm. you go to a shop mm-hmm. and you, you know it's an auntie that you knew from a long time and that's why you actually bought it because you know if you go to the you know, bigger chain store it's probably cheaper but because you know this auntie yeah. still buy some stuff off of her yeah. right and then now as it becomes more and more online you know there's actually no human relation to the company whatsoever and it's yeah, just a sure. platform that you just go on and it's kind of like, in a way, Grab and Uber is, is as well, right? Because there's no face to, to this, right? And, and there's no loyalty mm-hmm. to it other than, you know, you might get points and then you can redeem those points for certain services. Yeah. But other than that, there's no personal attachment to yeah. online companies, right? There's That's no true. loyalty whatsoever. I mean, I don't care if, if I have a Gojek price, that's cheaper than Grab and I'll go for the price, right? And I mean, you're not going to be like, oh, yeah, I love Grab because, I don't know, because I have this loyalty to grab nobody yeah. has that yeah Th- that's actually one of the things we, we speak about as well so um how do you uh maximize consumer engagement when everything's based online these days like you said it's so doesn't they don't have that personal touch anymore right some people just talk about things like you know crafting uh, a user experience so if if they can create a sort of environment 
where uh, consumers have a good time or, you know, they associate positive feelings mm. with this product, then they are more likely to stick with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's the challenge now. How do you reach out to these people if you're purely online? Mm. So there has to be a balance of offline uh, interaction as well. Yeah. And also, I think consumers are also becoming a bit more discerning about what they see online, right? Mm. A lot of people are like, you know, a lot of this influencer stuff is bullshit. Mm. And a lot of people know it. Yeah. So how do you make sure it's genuine in the first place? Um, mm. It's changing a lot from what when it first started off. Mm-hmm. You know, people would pose with a product and be like, oh, I love this. And yeah. People don't buy that anymore. Now they're right. like, no, you have to declare if this is a paid ad or not. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, also things like buying reviews, people know when it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. They can yeah. tell. And if they find out that it's fake, then that's it yeah. you know backlash is huge like no we're not going to trust you anymore right so trust is such a huge element mm. of it that's why i don't think you can rely on just online interaction with your consumers you have to go offline mm. as well right yeah and that's interesting because in that book also talks about the trust system yeah and and the first t is the trust mm-hmm. and the whole system is also called trust so i think everything right now is is that everything that's online? It seems everything looks like it's bullshit yeah. because you know whether it's fake news or fake reviews, that's whatever the fuck it is, yeah. they're all they. You just automatically think everything's probably like made up. Yeah, and you just need to find something that you can connect with that you think it's honest, it's true. Yeah, and and I guess you know with the marketing that you do, you need to bring out that trust exactly. more and more. Exactly. Um, you know, in the financial industry where you where I used to work, um, everybody said. Uh, integrity yeah like it was freaking cookies right i mean <laughs> like it, it, and there was absolutely no integrity whatsoever right. but they just said integrity you have to show integrity um but w- actions didn't really show integrity much and, and i think it's kind of the same with the online world right now and it's like you know they try to show trust and all that stuff but it's kind of bullshit and 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 we're, we're always constantly looking for you know the honesty yeah. you know like the, the true thing yeah um and that's kind of what we're struggling as a society too it is really difficult because we're experiencing on a day-to-day basis we're experiencing a huge disconnect from each other as well right yeah we just text all the time we don't remember each other's phone numbers anymore no one calls each other think you're a weirdo if you call them (laughs) don't call me i don't want to pick up the call right um so that sort of disconnect obviously translates into business as well Mm. um how do you keep people interested when attention spans are so low, mm. right? Mm. Um, in terms of your advertising, how do you get your message across in a hard-hitting way? Mm. You know, how do you craft it so that you can um, deliver your message in the shortest time possible? Mm. Well, there's two sides of it. Like, you know, if you see all these ads on YouTube, everyone wants to skip them anyway. Yeah. You know, they get Nobody annoyed. Yeah. yeah. In fact, it, it creates the opposite effect, right? Like, yeah. I don't want to see another... I'm not going to mention... Which adds, but you know, yeah. then you just associate it with annoyance mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah. So, whereas you have, um, for example, um, Thai advertisements, mm-hmm. right? Thai advertisements are known for being uh, very impactful. Yeah, exactly. So they're long. They tend to be long, but people are engaged. They watch it. They love it. How? Mm-hmm. You have to be different. You have to be genuine. I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the story that you tell. Mm. I think that's one of the most important things. Mm. Whether it resonates with people or not. Yeah. Mm. 
And I guess that goes for pol- politicians and politics as well. Yeah. Right? I mean, how do you, and especially in this region where you know corruption is so rampant, uh, and you know you're automatically thinking this guy's you know taking bribes everywhere, right? And then how do you actually you know cast a vote mm. on somebody that you already know they're they're probably corrupt anyway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but they still do, right? Like, yeah. Well, I, I'm not. I'm, let's. I'm just taking some some um, new ones that happen outside of this region, but. Uh, Argentina right. um, out is uh, Macri is out. He was the, the pro market um, polit- uh, president of the country, and then they they brought in the Peronists back, right? And you know they're corrupt, yeah. right? And and why the fuck do you you know elect these people again? And is it because of there's no choice, or is it like you know something that they trust in that Peronist style of doing things? I mean, you know, so how how does that like kind of you know, fit in with like, you know, this region as well. I mean, you know, you know that, you know, the things, you know, it's, 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 it's very hard to build trust in this region where you know that there's um, corruption everywhere. Right. Yeah. So I think it comes down to, I mean, that's why um, we're regressing towards identity politics, right? Mm. Because people don't trust anyone anymore. So, you know, they see the first guy that, sort of relates to what they believe in mm. you know even though you know that you should um uh be more liberal but people are angry mm. you, know, you want to be more t- protectionist and uh mm. that's what they align with these days whether mm. it's race or religion mm. um it definitely feels like we're regressing because people have just lost trust in the political system yeah. so they're going to latch on to the one person that represents these um values that don't actually necessarily hold a place in society mm. anymore right why are you why are you focusing on things like religion how does that help your country mm. um i think i think that um it's just anger in the fact that systems haven't worked and people have not been given a voice mm. and now they have mm-hmm because of the internet, right? Mm, Everyone yes. has something to say. And they have more information as they well. They have more information that they want to see. Mm. You know, they're not going to see all sides of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because of algorithms or whatever, you're only going to see what you yeah. believe in as well. So mm. that's, it's just like a feedback loop, right? Mm. Um, and that sort of fuels this this anger or just that preference. You don't really see alternative viewpoints anymore, mm. I feel. Mm. Um, especially where you have... Uh, such huge populations that are on social media platforms like fa- like Facebook, mm. right? Uh, in Myanmar, for example, um, populations only really started to get online recently because prior to that, uh, phones and SIM cards were really expensive. So I actually lived there for a year when mm. I was teaching there. This is like back in 2012. Mm. I didn't even have uh, a cell phone right. because it cost like 300 USD for a SIM card. Mm. So I just wow. made do without it. Mm. Um, whereas now in such a short span of time everyone has access to a cell phone so um, from what I've heard basically people equate Facebook to the internet yeah right that's where you get get everything right yeah exactly that's where you get everything and you trust everything that you see even though it might not be true you don't really people aren't educated or taught I mean people aren't taught to search for alternative viewpoints Mm. alternative alternative sources of information Mm. Um, so there should be some sort of education about internet internet usage, right? And uh, if it's not taught in school and everyone's just given a cell phone and they start to use mm. it that way, so it becomes a very narrow-minded sort of access to information. Mm. Yeah. 
mm. and could swing politics as well. For sure. And you know that's kind of like where you know the the, the you know for me like the the future of like how politics is going to look like is is going to be you know targeted um, you know groupings yeah. of people and how do you arouse you know a certain demographic certain class uh to be on your side and and, and target the fuck out of them not not through general channels like the tv but Mm -hmm. like facebook and twitter and all these things so that it could get to yeah because it's been proven to work right Mm -hmm. i think like even in the pentagon there's a unit i can't remember what it's called exactly but they specifically focus on like memes during the election yeah you know, in the previous election, how were memes used by you know Russian infiltrators mm-hmm. or whatever right. to incite um, hatred against Clinton? Yeah, you know things like that. Uh, I mean, we can laugh about it now, but again, it's used for much worse purposes. Like um, in Myanmar, mm. when they found out that uh, a lot of um, military officials were going on Facebook or social media platforms spreading anti-Rohingya propaganda. And this resulted in, uh, in you know, in a lot of mass murders, and rape, things like that. Um, all of it was incited by fake accounts mm. uh, from the military, in fact. Yeah. So uh, it's definitely changing, um, not just politics, but race relations or mm. um, how people within one country relate to each other as well. So it's 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 terrifying mm. when you think about it. How easily people can be manipulated mm-hmm. yeah and mm. in, in a very multi-ethnic region like ASEAN right even if you're let's say Thai there's so many different Thais within the country or you know there's I forgot how many regions there are in, in Myanmar but there's yeah. very different uh, regions they all speak a different language, uh, language. Yeah. or India for that matter where you know you have so many <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and and how do you you know because you know you, it's kind of easier when you, when everybody speaks the lang- language and you could target and you can kind of manipulate but like in the, in these in these regions I mean it's it's hard to rouse the whole entire population when they come from a different religious or ethnic mm-hmm. background mm-hmm. Um, and you know how how do how do you think these you know targeted you know marketing of like politics can work. That's a bit tricky because I think it comes down to appealing to the majority, but not in a very overt sort of way, mm. right? Um, I mean, in India, it's pretty... Everyone says that the current ruling party, they're all Hindu nationalists, yes. so obviously they appeal to the majority of the population. But sometimes it doesn't have to be so overt. Like in the case of Trump, he doesn't mm. he doesn't necessarily speak with the fact that he's a Christian, mm. but he definitely appeals to the people these are the people that vote for him, right? Mm. Um, so definitely it's about just subtly manipulating that sort of aspect and mm. relating or reaching out to the majority vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Kind of finding that common denominator for you know, certain groups. I Religion, mean, I'm sure yeah. people in the Midwest and the U- U.S. are Christian, but they don't vote for Trump because he's Christian, right? And yeah. Maybe that's a small factor, but but they also voice out the anger that they experience because they're also in fly-by countries and they don't really get any say in the national politics they haven't been given representation before so now you have someone that Mm. kind of aligns with what they feel as well right Mm. so Mm. interesting you could talk about this uh trust system as well right i briefly touched on it um but it starts with the trust and then you have relationships up close shake up talent yeah yeah so 
I mean, basically why uh, Joe wanted to write the book was um, he felt like there wasn't really a guide on actually doing business in, Singap- in, in, in Asia, mm. right? Theoretically, you know what you're supposed to do, right? But there were no actual case studies to go by. People mm. have come here, they've done it, they've made it. So that's why he wanted to do this. And um, I was working with him previously. Uh, I come from a more political background, right? I was writing articles for the local university, things like that. That's when I was working with him. And so he had done a lot of interviews for you know, websites like Forbes. Mm. And um, he's like, look, I have all this information that I want to sort of synthesize and put together into a book to help people who want to do business in Asia. Um, and since you sort of have the uh, political and socioeconomic context, can you help me sort of put it together and contextualize it? So that's when that's how it came about. And uh, we were wondering how to structure it because you can't just throw a bunch of case studies into a book, right? And we decided to come out with this trust system. And um, like I said, it, it's called the trust system. And the first element of it is T for trust. Mm-hmm. And that's what is the base of everything else that comes forward later, right? Uh, so when you're talking about trust, you're thinking about um, uh, not just how to develop trust with your consumer, but also relationships in the country that you're in. So when Joe first came to Asia, he was in, he started off in China and he was like, you know, I have all these qualifications, but uh, I don't have the connections and how do I make these connections? And um, even in Singapore as well, um, how do you get a job if you're coming here from overseas? How do you make these connections? And uh, we talk a bit about that, you know, just things like, um, especially for a business, how do you build the right relationships with the media? with peers even, if you want to do collaborations and things like that. And then we also go on to um, uh, how important it is to localize in terms of getting up close with the population, understanding their needs, understanding where there is a gap in the market that you can come in. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, I guess guess it's really about not just coming in aggressively and looking to get a share of the pie, right? Um, we wanted to really reinforce the fact that you have to understand your host country if you want to be successful, if you want to be trusted. Mm. A lot of people make the mistake of just coming in, following a certain model and thinking that it's going to work without getting to know its host country. Like we're talking about Uber and Grab, what's the yep. difference, right? So I think that's where the book came from. Mm. That's what we had in mind mm. when we put the system together. And yeah. You know. mm. And then how did your political background help in writing this book? Um, I think for me, what really matters is uh, representation. So you can't just come in here and expect people to work for you without understanding what it's like. Um, this is going off tangent, but um, it, one of my own personal interests is... Um, for example, like uh, labor, mm-hmm. right? Uh, labor in a country, you know that um, labor conditions in countries like Cambodia, Vietnam, they can be quite atrocious, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of exploitation going on. Sure. So you as a business, if you're going in, are you doing anything to help that? Are you making it worse? Mm-hmm. So I think it's a lot about being conscious of what you're doing as well as an entity. Mm-hmm. whether you're making things worse or whether you're actually bettering the society that you're in. I think that's a very important thing that 
I would like to sort of, you know, spark awareness about as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And and can you talk about the uh, the other R U S T? Oh yeah. So we talked about trust, um, relationships, uh, up close, getting and un- getting to understand your uh, your consumer base, and then um, it's shake up. So shake up. Uh, what we mean is uh, basically do things differently, right? Or find a niche that hasn't been addressed before. So it can be, you really have to sort of survey your market, see where you can come in. Um, and again, this is a process that involves talking to people, understanding what they need, what they want, and addressing it. It's not just about what you want to achieve when you come into a place. Mm-hmm. Um, this even goes for like personal relationships. So Joe talks about this a bit. And uh, he's like, if you want to attend uh, trade shows, for example, you want to be a speaker at these trade shows, you mm. want to be, you know, uh, a lot of people go with the approach that, you know, listen to me, I have a lot to say, I have good things to say. But in 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 reality, you should be talking to these organizers and saying, look, this is how I can help you with this. Yeah. Right? Um, so it's the same approach to the market as a whole. How can I help you? How can I address your needs? Yeah. I think that's a really good way of going about it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the case studies that we talk about is a fashion brand called Lily Selb, right? And uh, basically started by these two girls. Um, they were interested in um, modest wear for, uh, for, for Muslim girls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about a huge portion of the population, not just in Singapore, but extending to the rest of Southeast Asia as well. And uh, there's so much to explore that hasn't really been explored because it's so niche. Yeah, right? what is modest wear? Modest wear is basically... Um, uh, clothing that is appropriate for uh, Muslims, mm. right? So, you know, you, things like the hijab. Um, mm. People are taking greater interest in the fashion aspect of it, right? Um, and you see that with big brands as well. Like Nike has a pro hijab wear sort mm-hmm. of line now. And people are coming. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So people are coming in uh, you know, to bank on that as well. But on a, on a, on a smaller scale, um, they identified something that wasn't really being addressed. Uh, there are not enough online stores, for example. You have like thousands of them, right? But no mm. one was actually addressing or mm. providing that sort of thing. So that's one of the examples. Um, it was like a modern version of a modest wear, right? Kind of. they were trying to, yeah, to yeah, yeah, not like yeah. the traditional stuff. No, not the traditional stuff. Yeah. Also, you know, featuring uh, uh, local up-and-coming designers. Also engaging... Um, People who are not just influencers, but friends of theirs who had a decent following in the community. So people can relate to it and be like, hey, I know this person. That's something that I would like to wear. Right. Mm. So just making it relatable, I guess, because um, I'm sure it's been addressed before. Yeah, sure. But not with the platforms that we have right now. Mm. Right. So that's that's one example. And also, um, we talk about other things as well and just really how to how to get inside the minds of people, um, how to make an emotional impact as opposed to just being practical about everything, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then um, the last uh, the last aspect of the trust system is talent, of mm-hmm. course. So, I mean, I think that speaks for itself. If you want to, to have a successful business, you have to groom a great team. Mm-hmm. How do you go about doing that, especially in Asia? Okay. Right. Um, how do you source the right talent? 
how do you go about HR issues that would be different here compared to the West? Um, so that's how are sometimes. they different? Um, just things like uh, there is a lot. The gig econ the, the gig economy doesn't work the same here. Okay. Right. A lot of people um, they engage, for example, uh, Vietnamese graphic designers because there's a huge market for that. Mm -hmm. But then again, they underpay them mm. compared to people that they would hear right. in Singapore, for example. Okay. So just being conscious of these things. Um, also, there's a huge shift towards um, taking into account the needs of your employees as well. You know, in traditional right. Asian uh, working culture, there's a very hierarchical sort of way about doing even in Japan, right? Mm -hmm. It's always about just listening to what your boss says. He does it, you do it, you know, and you're, you're good. But now there's a lot more, um, you know, focus on like uh, things like, I, mean, I guess it comes to startup culture as well. Mm -hmm. Right, things like onboarding. Are you a right fit for this company? Uh, what can we do for you as well, so that you're happy and you want to stay on? Yeah. So that's a huge shift towards that mm -hmm. uh, employee welfare and how that changes their productivity as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I th I think um, the the st what I've experienced here is that uh, you know it, people follow orders very well, but when it comes to um, you know, talking, providing opinions or ideas, and, and it takes a little bit of time for them to warm up to the idea that they can actually confront me with a an opposing idea, right? And and that that I guess is kind of, um, you know, you don't really see that much in this culture, and and uh, you just see a bit, you know, a bit more. You know, and I think it has to do with more of the the relationship that you build with your, your with your bosses right okay. if you're like top down you know the way that you do your management style is i'm the boss do what i say kind of thing whereas you know i think you know certain american businesses are starting to become a bit more flat and it makes the they grow an environment they grow yeah. the people so that it's okay to you know be opinionated and, and and throw ideas out and you know that and of course i mean you know the boss is not the smartest person in the world right i mean you know my my view is the boss hires smart people than him yeah. or her yeah. so that it, it contributes much greater to the whole you know like business right so i think that that mindset still needs to like kind of uh, occur here is yeah. kind of what I'm feeling. Yeah, so I think that's why it's changing as well because now people are a lot more aware of the fact that they can easily just jump between jobs, right? Uh, you know, when I look at LinkedIn these days, I don't see people working more than a year exactly. in one company, exactly. right? And they're like, oh, several months here, several months there. Yeah. I don't know, is that is that something that I should be, you know, comfortable with now? Or because to me, like, it look, if you're only working for a couple months in a com company, that's yeah. like an intern, right? I mean, that's not a real job. You know, you don't even get the whole flavor of the whole con yeah, exactly. you know, business, right? I mean, but is that is that is that normal now? Or, or is that a say, cultural thing? I wouldn't say it's normal, but I think it's becoming a bit more acceptable, right? Maybe not like two months. But I think it is very normal now for people to jump after a year or two. Because now the focus has shifted to what can the company do for me? Yeah. Right? What mm. can they offer me that I'm not getting here? Mm. And um, that's why it's become a lot more flexible, more focused on employee welfare. I mean, I guess you have to be discerning as an employer as well, you know, and look at their, look at their experience and be like, no, why is this person shifting jobs every three yeah. months? No, exactly. Something might be wrong there, yeah. But 
for the most part, um, people aren't as afraid of longer gaps in their resumes where, mm. they, where they freelance or they just do their own thing for a bit. People aren't as afraid of, um, of uh, yeah, switching jobs every couple of years or so. I don't think people are judged as much based on that these days compared to back then when they would be like, oh, this person is really loyal to his company because he's been there for five years. Mm. He must be a good employee. Mm. As opposed to whether he's actually good at work, at his work. Yeah, that's true. It's yeah. not a true reflection. But, um, you know, I guess the work process of like, let's say you're in a sales business and, and onboarding customer and then being with them through the customer journey, it, it's not several months, right? I mean, it's, it's years. Yeah. Uh, and in order to experience the whole cycle of that, you need... A certain amount of commitment um, that you put into your job in order to say I have experience in X right and then you could go to another com company and say you know uh, mentality wise I'm like I'm a freelance yeah. and you know but I've done all these things you know but to me if you're just telling me that you only work for five months or seven months in a company I mean it doesn't really that might not be a good indicator <laughs> yeah, yeah I don't think so I, I don't think it really to me, it, it has nothing to do with like generations, right? I mean, because businesses, yes, are faster now, but like the but engagement is hasn't really changed For that sure. much, right? Yeah, and I agree. Mm. Yeah. So how do you how do how do we like retain talent then, right? Because, so you're saying that you know you have to give in order to like retain, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I need to gain something out of them as yeah. well, right? Yeah. I'm not just going to pay them extra for you know keep you know staying in the company yeah, yeah so i think what's interesting is how um employers are taking a lot more time to actually speak to their team mm. um get to connect with them on a much more personal level like one of the people that we spoke to in the book he speaks about how like um when his employees come on board he he makes sure he finds out what their personal goals are within the next two to five years mm and whether it's in line with the company's goals and he checks in on them you know every mm. few weeks and months this might be a bit uh time consuming if you have a large company but that's mm. where your hr should come in or you know that's where your focus on employee welfare should come in because if you don't check in with them they're going to leave anyway mm -hmm. you know, what do you have to offer them that another company can't so in terms of retaining talent i think it's very much about connecting on a personal level and saying like do your goals align with this am i helping you the way you want uh, are you happy enough to continue working here? Mm. Yeah, but of course it has to be a give and take. It's not like mm. they don't offer anything to you as well because that's the whole point. If you hire the best options that you have out there in the market, what can you offer them in mm. return? Mm. Yeah. And do you think you know there's a cultural difference between various countries within ASEAN mm. uh, when you when you're employing talent? Because let's say I'm a new business, whether it's a startup or you know international company wanting to open an office in these regions and I let's say I open one in in Thailand and another one in, in, in Indonesia. I mean, how would that really differ? Mm. I don't have enough experience to mm. comment on that, but I think it ultimately comes down to the culture that you create within your company and how big it is mm -hmm. and creating the right sort of structure around that. Mm -hmm. Um there's that Asian stereotype that it's not about it's not just about how much work you do, it's about the hours that you put in to show that you're actually mm. in the office for a certain amount of time, right? Face time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Whether you're actually doing work or not is a whole other question. Mm -hmm. So I think that mentality sort of still persists a lot, but that's because of um, old generations that still have that, mm -hmm. that 
that say over whether you're a good employee based on how much time you put in. Yeah. But I think that's changing a lot with um, with younger generations, of course. They're starting to understand that it's about working smart, right? Sure. Not just about working hard. If you can be productive in six hours compared to eight hours, I mean, what we know of our regular working days are based off of, you know, mm-hmm. old notions of industrialization anyway, right? Yeah. Ford and factory workers. Mm-hmm. What's what's Yeah, well they'll put in in hours and then their actual, you know, productivity per minute per hour is, is very measurable. Exactly. But now, you know, you're you're not working in factories, you're not exactly. you know, doing you know, a lot of things are a lot more automated now. Um, so it's you know, we're putting in a lot more creative time in, in it. And and those things can't be measured exactly. uh, and by the hours that you put into it. Yeah, exactly. So that has to change, I guess. Our notions of productivity, which is great. I mean, you do see it. Like a lot of companies are offering more work from home days or mm-hmm. flexible working yeah. conditions in general. And um, yeah, I have a, I have an employee that doesn't even show up in my office. Does <laughs> <laughs> he get shit done? <laughs> yeah, and they get shit done. Yeah, uh, I, I I actually don't go to work in the morning either. I work from home because right. that's kind of my time that I can you know nobody is you know interrupting my time and I can you know dedicate know fresh you know time in the morning to do something creative or think about things strategy whatever and then in the afternoon i do like meetings and you know and uh, that just makes stuff. you more innovative and creative in the long run because you sort of have that ability to focus your energies where it matters or mm. how you feel is right i mean mm. you can't just expect us to be at the same level of you know productivity sure. throughout yeah, the day it varies right? varies yeah. and that's why sometimes i put or a lot of the times i i, I go and work out during lunchtime yeah. so that I could kind of, you know, like that, reboost yeah, yeah, yeah. again. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, and I do encourage everybody um, to do that. During lunch. During lunch or whenever yeah, whenever it's possible, right? Because yeah. I think, you know, your mind is always, can't be at a peak performance at all times, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, I, I do believe that, you know, you have to do some, whether you want to go for a walk or go to the spa, get your nails done, whatever it is. You just get out of you know, the office yeah, for a bit. Exactly. For fresh, refreshing, freshen up. Maybe they actually people go to lunch for, you know, for an hour to do, you know, to, to fresh, uh, freshen up. But, you know, I, I think now you should, like, coordinate your day based on uh, how you perform the best. Exactly. So th- that's where it applies to talent as well, mm. right? Understanding that. We're human at the end of the day. We're not just workhorses. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good that the mindset is changing in mm-hmm. that sense, but it's still very much isolated to, you know, startup culture and things like that. So it has to sort of mm-hmm. spread out to other industries as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think more and more, um, you know, international companies going into these different countries with a newer, you know, mindset. Uh, can change a lot of that. Oh as yeah, well. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Right? And yeah. then vice versa too. Yeah, right? culturally, that's just how it works, right? Mm. It diffuses if people mm. are open to it, if they feel like it's it's better suited mm. to them. Yeah. Now, how do you organize your your time to work? Oh, I'm in a full time job now, so yeah. <laughs> but what do you? I do? don't mind it so much, but I try to, you know, stick to. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't stay late at work at all. You know, mm. even if there's stuff to do, I'll just do it the next day. Because I know I'm not going to be productive anyway, so I make sure that even if it's just going home to watch TV, mm-hmm. you know, it's better than trying to to force yourself. And um, like you said, I think it's important to go take a walk when mm-hmm. you feel like it, refresh your mind a bit. Uh, meditation helps a lot. Mm. 
yeah i think in the past Definitely. couple of years yeah mm. that has helped me a lot mm-hmm. um so even if you're stressed out it's easy to just revert back to a you know sort of mm. mental clarity and you wouldn't have that if you didn't train your mind to do it in the first place mm. so just taking time each day to focus on these aspects will make the rest of the day a lot easier to deal with mm. i guess yeah yeah is there a specific type of meditation that you do or or a specific time in the day that you do meditations um i try to do it in the mornings uh i usually get up quite early about six mm. yeah five thirty-six. so squeeze in a workout and some meditation before work but if not then even if it's just 10 minutes at lunchtime or before i go to bed mm-hmm. i feel like the morning is, is the best time mm. for it so you start off your day right yeah and uh it honestly genuinely feels like nothing really affects you afterwards mm-hmm. because you've already sort of come down to that frequency mm-hmm. yeah yeah cool there's many many aspects of of this uh, that we could talk more but uh yeah, maybe we could talk about it some some other time. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Future Design Podcast.